companies. In some companies, we have seen that their financial services revenue even overtakes their core product revenue. So there might be a point for your business where it actually makes a whole lot of sense to stand it up because it's going to bring you way more revenue than your SaaS fees. Welcome to the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast, powered by Gusto. On this show, we explore the intersection of fintech, vertical SaaS, and how software combats the rising complexity of running a business. Our goal is to share stories, advice, and best practices from the leaders and investors behind today's cutting-edge platforms. This episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast is brought to you by Gusto Embedded. Gusto has spent a decade building and testing its payroll, tax filing, and compliance infrastructure, which is available as a robust set of APIs so you can develop custom-tailored payroll solutions. For more information, go to embedded.gusto.com. Here's your host, Brian Bush. On this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators podcast, my guest is Mauricio Comey, formerly the CEO of QuickBooks Insurance, and more recently, the CEO of Dutchie Insurance Services. Today, we're going to do a deep dive on insurance and embedded fintech more broadly. Mauricio, welcome to the show. Ryan, thank you for having me. Super fun to be here. I can't wait to get into this one. But first, for the sake of the audience, Mauricio, please tell us a little bit about your background and your career journey. Yeah, so the last 12 years, I've been working in different types of fintech products here in Silicon Valley in a number of roles. And more recently, as you said, I led the initiatives at both Intuit and Dutchie to build these two insurance businesses. And the way that I got to it is I was leading the product partnerships team at QuickBooks, and I found this massive opportunity. We had a partnership with a insurance broker where we were selling workers' compensation. And it was an interesting partnership because we were not making a huge amount of revenue on it, but the opportunity was just gigantic. We had just not taken advantage of it. As I started digging into it and realized how big it could be, I realized that was something that I had to pitch to the company. They bought the idea and we were off to the races. So let's talk about how you actually acted on that. You said, hey, there was a big opportunity, but the actual revenue you were driving from the partnership wasn't that large. So you decided to essentially build, for lack of a better term, an insurance broker within QuickBooks. Tell us a little bit more about what you actually did to take advantage of that opportunity. Yeah, just to contextualize the size of the opportunity, small businesses in the U.S. spend over $100 billion in property and casualty insurance premiums. And doing a bit of research, both through surveys, understanding a little bit the spend of small businesses in terms of like broad averages and looking at the QuickBooks data, we realized that this was in the tens of billions of dollars worth of opportunity in terms of premium. And that's the number that really jumped out. So with that as the anchor point and also realizing what was happening in the industry, where insurance is probably 10, 15 years behind payments and banking in terms of tech capabilities. It was just the right timing and the right opportunity to dive into it. And when we started it, we probably had a lot of hubris and naivete as, as many tech initiatives tend to have in the team. We had nobody with insurance expertise, but we did try to find as many experts out there as possible. And we went through a journey where we explored initially through lead generation, then as a brokerage and eventually as an MGA, what was the best path to build this business in the way that we wanted to serve essentially a very broad type of customers that QuickBooks has. So first, please define what MGA stands for for those of us who are less in the know in, in the property and casualty insurance space. But importantly, 
give us a little bit what was under the hood because it wasn't just say, hey, I want to become licensed and sell some products. You had to bring together a massive number of different tech platforms in order to create this offering. Yeah, so an MGA is essentially a broker that has the ability to sell a product under its own brand while it has a carrier behind the scenes that takes care of the risk. So think of it as a like a white label insurer. You can go out there with your own name, QuickBooks Insurance, but you're not taking on the financial risk of any claims that come in and you get paid a bigger commission for that sale because you're taking on yourself a lot of the responsibilities of selling that insurance product a lot of the underwriting process and a lot of the operational servicing components of it. So you make more revenue, but it's a bigger investment. And yeah, it's pretty complex to do. The way that we ended up doing it, we had to put together 13 different partners and vendors in order to offer a single product. The good thing is that once you have that in place, you can start scaling that to additional insurance products. Got it. So I'm excited to dig in because I think in a sense, you saw a lot of what it means to build with embedded fintech before that term was common in a sense with the experience first with QuickBooks and then of course doing something similar with Dutchie. So let's broaden sort of the aperture just a little bit. Insurance is the business of risk, but all financial services, all embedded fintech have a risk component. So put your product hat back on. If you're thinking about launching embedded fintech products today, how do you think about risk? And specifically, how do you bucket things like business risk versus financial risk? What's owned by the company versus owned by the partner? Give us a little bit sort of your framework for thinking about modern embedded fintech products and risk. Yeah, I think it's no secret that financial services adds a pretty substantial amount of revenue to your business if you're able to offer those services. I heard the other day from a VC friend that almost every vertical SaaS startup, they have a financial services slide at the end of that deck where they're pitching that they're going to do all of these products and that's how they justify their revenue targets or at least a hypothesis of how much they can capture. So that's no secret. Obviously, there's a sequencing that needs to come in in order to do that. So I like the way you define it, which is there's like a business risk component, which is, should we even do this? What are the opportunity costs? What's the right timing? What's the overall effort? And we can dive a little bit more into that. But then yes, every time that you're dealing with money in this type of way, whether it's payments, lending, payroll, or insurance, which I would say are the four main products that you can get into, you're also engaging, depending on where you sit on the value chain, on a financial risk that if things go wrong, you can lose your shirt, right? So that has not just an impact on your balance sheet, but it also has an impact on your potential future valuation as a business if that risk is there and investors perceive that as something that maybe not as safe as like subscription fees where you can do graphs up and to the right in pretty linear ways and there is no like shock event that can take you out of business if you got your underwriting wrong. So starting with the first one, which I think is where you should start, you have to earn the right to sell a second product to your first customer. And that's something that a lot of businesses know, but then in conceptually, but then it's like, what is the right time to offer any of these products to your customer so that you can start generating more revenue out of them? And honestly, if you haven't won with your core product, you have no business doing this yet. You have to show your customers that the main operating product that they're using to run their business, whether your construction software or time management software for employees or point of sale systems in whichever industry vertical you're in, you have to build an amazing experience there that your users want to use. Once you have that, then you can start putting in these other things that essentially make their lives easier. If you're a taco truck, 
all you want to do is drive around, make tacos and sell tacos. You don't want to be dealing with payroll. You don't want to be dealing with buying insurance. You don't want to be dealing with payments. So having that built in into your software is a significant competitive advantage because the moment that they need it, they're just going to go to the first place where they go to every day and essentially go and buy this financial service product, which has not just a big revenue opportunity, but on average, they also have higher margins. So your average customer grows with lower costs. So that's the really interesting part. Now, how much do you want to go into this activity? It really depends on your resources and your willingness to invest. So you can start with something basic like lead generation. Somebody else can be doing payment processing or your insurance or your lending. And you're just a button that takes the customer to that other company for them to take care of it. The beauty of that is that the effort is extremely low. The bad part of it is that in a way you're giving away that customer, you're giving away customer experience and you're giving a total revenue opportunity. So if you have very little resources, that's a great place to start. And I actually recommend it because it helps you start learning about those products. You have so many ideas about what it could be, but until you really test it out, until you see what are the friction points, until you see where does it hurt the customer to go through this process, it's very hard for you to really understand what you need to build. And I think you can do a lot of experimentation with lead generation just to get a baseline of knowledge of how to get it done. And then you can start moving upstream once you realize that the opportunity is big and you're willing to commit. But it is usually harder and takes longer than people expect. So you should only do it once you know for sure. Yeah, I just want to double click into it quickly. I love the way you phrase it as, hey, even just that lead gen button it can give you a lot of good data or signal on, hey, do my customers want this? Do they want this at this point in the journey? And you say the things you give up, the user experience in some sense or the seamlessness of it, you give up the revenue opportunity. I think I'd argue you give up some of the data too. We see that as a big benefit, at least in the payroll world. Partners, SaaS partners want the payroll data to bring into dashboards and things like that. But okay, so if that's the lead gen piece, Let's go to that next step. And you talk about now we're going to make a bigger investment. We're going to actually build, I'll say with a proper embedded fintech product for lack of a better term, but we're going to build a truly embedded experience and you know, maybe take us through. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. Let me give you the example of insurance and how we went through the journey. I'll tell you how we failed and then how we pivoted from that where it actually started working. So once we had the proof points with Legion where we realized, oh, wow, like there is appetite for this. People are willing to buy from us. We partner with pretty small brands that were not necessarily known, and we saw that customers would buy from them. So we realized also that brand value was not necessarily that important as long as the convenience was there and the products were right. At that point, we're like, okay, let's become an insurance broker. And an insurance broker, if it's not obvious to everybody that is hearing this, let me just briefly explain it. It's simply an agent that can sell insurance products from multiple carriers. So you represent the customer, and you're supposed to find the right products for them. And the way that we wanted to do it was as digital as possible. And here we started running into problems because we wanted to build a very streamlined, simple experience where you could answer a few questions on a screen, get some quotes, choose what you want to buy, and then be on your way. And what we realized was that most carriers at that point didn't have good APIs that we could plug into so that we could essentially create that seamless experience from data inputs, quote presented, quote, choice and purchase in a way that we wanted it. Maybe they had the quoting part, but not the purchase part. Maybe they had the purchase part, but not the payment in monthly installment parts. So it was amazing how it just broke down 
because of the lack of technical capabilities by most carriers. And what we realized is that the other companies that were trying to do this, they were hiring enormous amounts of people to essentially what you would do as a customer digitally on screen behind the scenes, you would have a bunch of people converting that into faxes and emails and phone calls and interacting with those carriers in an old school way to then bring back the customer to some digital experience. So it was incredibly awkward and it required enormous resources that I was just simply not going to get uh, added to it. So we realized that we couldn't control the customer experience in that model. So we decided to move upstream to this MGA model. So we found a carrier and a reinsurer that was happy to provide us their product and their risk capabilities. And they said, if you sell insurance within this box, and what they meant by this box is customers that answers these questions in a certain way, then this is the formula for you to price it. And you can issue all the policies like as much as you want. So with those two partners, a tech platform, a bunch of data providers, a payment processor, a mail printing provider to send physical documents, we essentially cobbled together an experience that our engineering team built so that it was deeply embedded in our UI. And it was beautiful. You could essentially buy an insurance product in less than five minutes. And our customers absolutely love that. That's incredible. And I want to go back, maybe see if I'm filling out our little two by two correctly. As you evolve, you know, and the two by two again is there's business risk versus financial risk, and there's owned by you, in this case, Intuit, owned by the partner. So in the terms of the business risk owned by Intuit, in this case, you used first lead gen, then being a broker, and then becoming the MGA to sort of de-risk, like, hey, will the customer actually buy this? Is the experience the way that we want it? You progressed up the scale there. Your partners, the carriers were saying, our business risk is we're going to give you the box that you can only quote within, you know, as long as you can confirm that the customer is sort of, or the need, the risk is in this box, then we will let you actually price and sell the risk. They obviously then own that risk. That's the financial risk for them. So was there still a financial risk owned by Intuit at the end of the day? Not at this point. Eventually the challenge with that, with where we were, which by the way, was the right place for us to be at that time, was that within the box, we would exclude a bunch of customers. And if we were smarter on insurance or if we had specific data that we thought could be useful to reduce the false negative, where you essentially kick out a non-risky customer because it doesn't fit the box, if we would have wanted to do that, maybe we would have had to go into a different type of conversation with the carrier partner to say, hey, maybe go further upstream in that value chain. And there are different models to do that. You can create a captive. You can do a sliding scale commission structure to participate in that risk so that you can expand that box. So in insurance, it is possible. But in our case, it wasn't necessary. The box was sufficiently large so that we could say, look, there's, there's going to be a few customers that we're going to exclude, but there are so many that fit within that box that we are going to be okay taking the risk on that. On the lending side, Intuit had a different approach, right? On the lending side, there used to be a marketplace. Actually, there still is a marketplace where they have a number of partners that offer loans. QuickBooks eventually decided to participate in that risk. And this is how QuickBooks Capital was born. And there they were able to be a little bit more aggressive, choosing data inputs that we had within the books to say, look, that customer that on the surface might look riskier to a third party, for us, it's actually fine because we know and we have proven it through some historical information, we're able to offer those loans. So I think QuickBooks Capital was a good example of where going a little bit further upstream 
participating in that risk actually made sense. And that business has been growing fairly healthily over the last few years. Yeah. So Mauricio, thank you for that deep drive. And I love sort of your two by two framework. Let's take the next step. If somebody's going to launch an embedded finance product, we talked about the business risk and how there are ways to sort of de-risk the, hey, will customers actually want this or buy this from you? But inherent in that, you talked about, hey, you want to build, like test the revenue potential here versus you are already thinking very deeply about what's the user experience that will actually drive the most revenue. And there are trade-offs there. Like how well do you really understand how well you're really solving the customer problem? So maybe when you get to that day of like, hey, we want to launch this thing, you already talked about there's a little bit of sequencing, but at what point do you reevaluate? Hey, is it time for us to take the next step or invest more here? So I think the most important thing here is to really understand what your customer needs and wants. And that is not so simple to do. Now, in parallel to that, I think it's never been easier to launch a financial services product offering today as it has been compared to any time before today. There are so many as a service companies out there. Payments has proven that for a while, payroll is coming up to speed, including with you guys. Some insurance companies are getting closer to it as well. And there's definitely a few players in the lending space that are offering these as a service capabilities for you to be able to build it. So I think there is definitely a little bit of research that you have to do to really understand, are you going to do lending? Are you doing short-term capital loans? Are you doing merchant cash advance? Are you doing like big investment type loans on real estate? Are you doing lines of credit? There's a lot of nuance there that will be important for you to understand so that you can decide, okay, what's the most beneficial capability that my customers need that will actually make a difference for them so that they continue to love me for who I am as their service provider. And then you get the revenue as a consequence of that. So I think really understanding the customer problem is going to be pretty important. And then you have to experiment your way through it. No solution is perfect by definition. With each choice that you make, there's going to be quite a few trade-offs, both in terms of maybe, yes, maybe there's a bigger revenue opportunity if you take on more jobs yourself, but it's also a bigger investment and that investment has an opportunity cost of other things that you could be doing. So I think that's where you have to spend quite a bit of time figuring out how do I offer the best solution to my customer while not distracting myself in the core business that I'm trying to build and get that velocity to get it going. One of the things that I think is interesting is when you have the finance people or strategy people looking into this, building the Excel model, it's pretty easy. You apply some percentages to some hypothesis to adoption rate, margin rate, and it's very easy to get skewed towards the bigger investment because your margin grows pretty substantially. In, in insurance, if you're doing lead gen, maybe you get in the high single digit commissions. If you do brokerage, you're in the 15 to 18%. If you're an MGA, it's 25 to 30% of premium. 25 to 30% of premium compared to eight, that's a big difference. But the amount, of work, the amount of work that you need to do from a lead gen, you need to sign a contract and put a button. Uh, in the MGA, you need to stand up a team, build technology. If you do it under a year, I would consider that to be extremely fast. So those are the two things that you need to keep in mind. Maybe you work them in parallel. Maybe you start saying, hey, there's a lot of legwork that we can start working on to build the MGA. In the meantime, let's do that lead generation exercise so that we can prove our validation points and learn a lot so that when we're ready to actually put money down, that we have high confidence that it's going to work. So if unit economics can be, especially before launching some of these products, like it's easy to do Excel math that looks incredible and goes up and to the right. And of course, companies launching these products should, and I'm sure do continue to track some of those unit economics. But do you have something else that you think of as, hey, 
here's what I'm calling success from some of these products or what you would recommend a founder say, who's launching some of these products, think about, well, here's what I'm going to consider success. The most important number that you should be chasing is adoption rate. If you are looking at margins growing from 5% to 30% of 1% adoption rate, not that interesting. But if you're able to 10x your adoption rate, now you're topping. And once it starts becoming big, then you have a very strong case to go for bigger margin because all of a sudden doubling or tripling $10 million, $50 million, $100 million, like that starts being really meaningful numbers. But that happens way later. Get to a place where you can show that you have at the top of the funnel a lot of people interested in your product and you're able to build an experience where it's so simple that you're able to get it to a place where the purchasing friction is extremely low. Financial services usually have a high bar in terms of the proof point of buying that product. Once you hit the paywall, will people actually buy? Make sure you, you prove that there's interest, that people are willing to go through the flow, that there is need, that you understand that you're selling them the right offering. In insurance, it's this multidimensional matrix that is insanely large because insurance products vary by geography, by insurance product, and by industry. And geography is state by state. 50 states times 10, 12 insurance products times 2,000 industries. Try to figure out where are you sitting in that like paint by numbers matrix so that you can capture a pretty significant portion of that revenue opportunity. I love that, the paint by numbers matrix. I think it's also worth reiterating. I think you're implying it. Correct me if I'm wrong. As you invest more, not only do you control the user experience, the customer experience more, as you mentioned, you with greater data, you probably control the risk more. But that comes with needing to invest more, not just in the product itself, but also on the compliance side. Like You need to know part of the reason these products vary state by state, I imagine, is because the rules and regulations vary state by state. Yeah. And there it varies greatly product by product. The insurance regulatory framework, as long as you're not a carrier, it's actually pretty easy to stand up. Like as a broker, it's almost as if you're going to the DMV. Bit annoying, bit frustrating, a little bit of process. You have to spend a little bit of money, but essentially not too complicated. If you're doing lending, it's very different. Once you're dealing with banking regulation and you're offering loans, that's very complicated. So the yeah, if I was going to break it up into components, the, there's building the product capability as a component, building the risk modeling and operational part of like, how do you underwrite? How do you decide what's good and what's bad? How do you deal with when things go wrong? The risk component that we were talking about before, compliance, and then obviously the go-to-market so that you can scale it. Those would be the bigger teams that you would need to stand up. And some of those you don't have to do if you are taking the more lead gen type approach. The more you move upstream in the value chain of each one of those offerings, the more you are going to have to stand up teams to deal with each one of these capabilities to offer a big business. In some companies, we have seen that their financial services revenue even overtakes their core product revenue. So there might be a point for your business where it actually makes a whole lot of sense to stand it up because it's going to bring you way more revenue than your SaaS fees. Keep that in mind. Some of the best in class out there have done it. And I think that's the holy grail, right? That's why we're here talking. It's what we would all should be striving for if we've earned the right with our core offering to essentially offer these additional products. So there's one more piece to this funny equation, which I think is pricing. And you and I chatted previously. It actually can be surprising at times how once you've built a really incredible experience, once you feel really good about the risk modeling and the operational piece on the back end, there's value in convenience. There's value in that seamless experience. So maybe before we wrapped up, 
if a founder or a company is doing all these other things, what advice would you have for the leaders around pricing for these types of products? Yeah. So depending on where you sit in the value chain, you might or might not control the price. Obviously, if you're doing lead gen, you don't control it. In our case, even when we were the MGA, we weren't controlling the price of the insurance. In a way, it's like your price takers. It is what it is, and you go with it. If you can control the pricing, so for example, in payroll, if you're doing payroll APIs, you have a cost that is charged by providers like you, and then you set the price on top of that. I wouldn't go for the cheapest price as the default to be more competitive. Because you don't know if that's what your customers want. Maybe for some companies, yes. Maybe for some companies, the customer set is, it will only work if it's the lowest price. But for some others, there's quite a few options out there. You might be able to get away with a higher price, higher margin, and in turn, offer a better service to that customer than if you're just going for low price. So I think spending a little bit of time on figuring out what your customer needs and wants is really important because they might be willing to pay a little bit more if it's incredibly convenient. And that is awesome. You can build a pretty substantial revenue stream with these offerings and your driver for success is not necessarily just being the cheapest out there. And that's thinking about some of these products or payroll specifically as sort of an add-on. We see an entire range from folks who are pricing below, call it a market average to well above. But what's interesting is where it gets well above, that tips into more of the opportunity for the SaaS platform for our partners to bundle and that where suddenly the some of the price value mental math that customers have just totally goes out the window and it opens up some really interesting opportunities, but it also opens up the door to a lot of complexity, I'd say. 100%. And yeah, thank you for bringing that up because once you have all these products, you can change your pricing model. And when you change your pricing model, all of a sudden comparing gets harder for the consumer. If you're going toe to toe with player three, four, five out there, and you're essentially offering the same things, price jumps to the customer as a very visible thing that they can stack you against. And it's very hard for them to know if one offering is better than the other one in terms of, will this save me time? That's such a hard claim to do. But at the end of the day, I bet that it's more valuable to the customer than saving a few bucks. So once you start bundling, you can change the conversation. Once you start bringing all of these products together, you can say, hey, look, if you plug in payroll payments and your score SaaS, you're going to pay X that on the surface, it might mean, could you offer your SaaS for free? If you do payroll and payments, that type of question becomes really interesting and it's worth experimenting with your customers. With some products, it's a little bit trickier. With insurance, you can't bundle. That's for regulatory reasons. So those two, unfortunately, have to stay separate. But for other products like payments and payroll, you can definitely do it. Well, Mauricio, before I let you go, you are now effectively a free agent um, looking at what you might do next. What's most exciting to you in SaaS, in fintech these days? What really do you think is interesting as you look towards the future? Yeah, the world of SaaS and vertical SaaS in particular is exploding. There's so many opportunities out there with so many legacy companies offering capabilities that it probably has never been a moment like today to build those companies. If you combine that with embedded financial services as a product that you can put these two together, the revenue opportunity that you can capture is just so big that it justifies the investment to create companies here. So I think combining those two is what gets me really excited. Any company can be a financial services company today because of the companies that offer these products, similar to what Amazon Web Services did to creating websites and just online capabilities. The same thing is happening with financial services. I think the future is going to look a little bit different than it looked in the past. I think the places where you buy a lot of these products are not going to be the places where you used to buy them before. 
And that's exciting because at the end of the day, it's incredibly convenient. It meets the customer where they need to be, and it's in a new place. It's not where they were before. So I'm super excited to see what is being built there and hopefully to get the chance to lead one of those efforts to make it very big. Mauricio, thank you so much for joining us today, for sharing a little bit of your experience and your way of thinking about the world. Before we wrap up, could you tell listeners, if anybody wants to connect with you, go deeper, have additional questions, where can they find you, say, on social media? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to meet anybody that is interesting to talk more. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn, Mauricio Comi. Maybe if you can add exactly on the screen how it's spelled, find me there. I'd be happy to chat with anybody that wants to go a little bit deeper on what it takes to build these products so that you can save a little bit of time with maybe some of them, hearing some of the mistakes that I make along the way and learn from them. Marisa, we'll make sure to add those links to the show notes. Thank you again. This has been a great conversation. I appreciate your time. Brian, it's a pleasure. Great seeing you and talking with you. And thank you for having me. Thanks again for tuning into this episode of the SMB Tech Innovators Podcast. We'll make sure to link to any resources that were mentioned in today's show in the show notes. Please also feel free to leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcast or to connect with the Gusto Embedded team via LinkedIn. In particular, we'd love to hear any future guests you'd like us to have on the show. Thanks again for listening and keep a lookout for the next episode.